how much should they pronate is is not something we want to determine. It's something we will invite them to pronate as much as they can in a safe way, where we create the environment for a pronated foot, which I'll just remind you of what I said earlier, which is um, a pronated foot has to take place on three points of contact, fifth metatarsal head, first metatarsal head, and the calcaneus. So if you actually watch high arch people uh, pronate, you attempt to pronate, what you'll probably notice is that they lose the fifth metatarsal. The fifth metatarsal comes off the ground. And what, you, what you're actually seeing is like, a, uh, we're not actually on camera, are we? But I'm moving my hand. I've got my palm, fingers straight, palm held to, down to the ground. And I'm lifting my little finger up and dropping my uh, thumb down. And this movement here is what people consider to be pronation supination. But that's the one thing that I would love people not to not to do. That was Gary Ward, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and thank you for being here with us today. This is an incredibly dense and informative episode with foot expert, biomechanist, and author Gary Ward. Gary is the inventor of the flow motion model, and he gives anatomy and motion clinics throughout the world. Gary was originally a guest on episode 92 of this show, where he went in depth on pronation and how to teach athletes to perform that motion better, along with many other topics on the foot. He's been a mentor to other guests on the show, such as Helen Hall and David Gray, and he is a guy who can look well outside the box when determining just how we tick as human beings and how different joint motions and actions all relate to each other. Before we get too far, I do want to lay down a couple quick definitions, that just being pronation and supination. If you haven't listened to some of the other episodes on the foot uh, in this uh, podcast, in this series, uh, just know in the simplest of terms, pronation is the unlocking of the foot, the yielding of the foot and the bones of the foot with gravity to flatten the three arches. So it's the loading portion of gait. Uh, supination is the opposite. It's the locking of the foot and it represents the unloading portion of gait. And if athletes can't pronate or load the foot properly, we can have some problems. Um, that's exactly why I have Gary on. Gary is brilliant when it comes to this stuff. The human body and the foot is incredibly complex in nature. And so I enjoy talking to people who have a mind for looking at things and seeing things that most of us miss, including myself. That's why I have these guests, these experts on. And so for today's episode, Gary is going to get into some real, I would call them hot button or highly debated or just difficult, just plain difficult points that we see with athletes. The two main things we're going to get into are athletes who have their feet turned out. So like that duck foot presentation, um, is it bad? Is it dysfunctional? Dysfunctional? What is it trying to tell us? Do we try to fix it? Do we try to fix it by steering people's feet in? Do we try to fix it? Um, and again, a fix is a loose term, but, or are there different ways that we would approach someone with this presentation? Uh, we're also going to get into athletes who have high arches and this is a big thing. I think if you work with a team of land-based athletes, you're going to have athletes who have high arches and there's some common presentations in those athletes and Gary goes into ways that we can help those athletes get better pronation and better foot action. And by the way, dorsiflexion and, and ankle range of motion is all tied in with this stuff. And so if you are still a person, and I've been in, I've been in this place too, but if you're still a person that thinks that just doing um, like knee touches against the wall and just your basic stretches of the lower leg is going to give you optimal results, 
it's really helpful to go that layer deeper and look at joint actions in the foot, pronation, supination, what it means and how it can help our athletes. So along with these two big topics, we're going to get into some other subtopics such as what does dysfunction really mean? What does an athlete's center mean or finding center? And we're also going to touch another really applied area, which is single leg stance. And single leg stance has been something I've been into heavily, not only under the impact of an influence of Dr. Tommy John, but also uh, just Gary Ward's work. And, and by the way, this work and a lot of these things that Gary's going to talk about today, Gary Ward's wedge uh, system is something that I've used to basically completely eliminate my own Achilles tendonitis or tendinosis, sorry, tendinosis issues. Getting the foot and the bones of the foot to work correctly is absolutely key to being the best performer you can be. It is a complex structure. That's why we have Gary, and I'm excited to bring this show to you. So uh, with that being said, let's get on to it. Episode 192 with Gary Ward. Gary, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being on here today. Uh, thanks so much, Joe. It's good to be back. I can't believe how long it's been, actually. Yeah, sometimes sometimes I forget. I because we yeah, we were just talking. It's like how long how long ago was this? I, I had to look at the, like this little Skype backlog, and it was uh, to see exactly uh, exactly how long ago. Uh, somewhere in 2018. But yeah, it's yeah, really good wow. to have you back. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah. So uh, I mean, it, and in that time, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I've um, thought and reflected, and and just so many <laughs> topics on the foot have come up on my end. So. I was like, man, I got to get Gary back and, and there's all these answers I need for all these things. And so I'm, I'm really excited to ask you this stuff today. And uh, the first one, the first question I had is just the idea of uh, the, the alignment or direction of the feet and particularly when the feet uh, point out uh, outwards. And is that the question is, is, is that a, is and when is that a problem uh, potentially for athletes with uh, with feet like pointing out? Yeah, OK. Um, is it a problem? So I think I'm going to start with, uh, just this initial idea that, um, I, I never really view anything as a problem for me. It's, it's just got to be giving us information. And so the question is probably what information is that giving us? <clears throat> and if we, if we take that information and we can understand it in a way that it explains what's happening in their body then we can then decide later if it's something we need to adjust or, or work with, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm, I'm a very big, and probably would have said this on our last chat, but I am not a big fan of the word dysfunction. So as soon as you go down the road of dysfunction, then you bump into a, a problem and then it becomes something you want to fix rather than something you want to understand. And so looking down at, at, at pointing out feet or, duck foot or 10 to two feet, you know, you, there's plenty of stuff out there where your automatic thought process, is it not, is to take those feet, and turn them in, turn them straight and let's get back on the train tracks and, uh, and uh, move from there. Well, what I kind of noticed is that is, is, and actually it's quite a big question to jump straight into because <clears throat> one of the things we need to understand is, is the mechanics of the whole, of the whole structure. So a, a turned out foot, if you turn your feet out, what you should notice if you've got mobility in your feet is that your foot actually will pronate. And then so to um, just to bring some sense of understanding around pronation, because I don't believe many of us have a good one. Um, it's first of all, pronation is a three 
dimensional movement of 26 bones that culminate in the arch lowering or the arch is lowering three arches in the foot um, 33 joints 26 bones and working with a tripod on the ground so first metatarsal head fifth metatarsal head and the calcaneus so technically if you turn your feet out and the tripod is on the ground you should get a sense of all of these bones moving to lower the arch and then we have a conversation where when I when the arch lowers like that, what is the impact on the muscles? And and we or I have a, a rule which is that joints act and muscles react. So what is the muscle reaction to this movement of the bones in the foot of a pronation? And though what we'll see, <coughs> excuse me, is is the vast majority of the muscles in the foot, what they are supinators. And what that means is that when the foot pronates, it's going to put length into a, the supinators. So a, a supinator muscle, when it shortens, will create a supination of the foot. So a pronation of the foot would put length into it. Hopefully that, that's clear. So what you've got now is a foot is turning out and putting length into the vast majority of muscles in the, in the foot. Um, and then we can go back to structure. Uh, if you, the structural conversation is now that uh, a, a pronated foot that is turned out well, actually has limitations um, above it. So um, in the vast majority of cases, you'll find that an ankle will begin to dorsiflex, which would put a flexion into a knee. Um, and everybody can try this next bit is, is it's impossible to externally rotate a femur on a pronating foot. So even though the foot's turning out, what it means is that the direction of rotation of the femur is inwards. So now you have a pronating foot, a dorsiflexed ankle, a flexed knee with an internally rotating femur, which actually means you have an externally rotated knee, which is a valgus knee. Um, and, the, and the hip, if you have an internally rotated femur, it's very difficult to achieve a posterior pelvic tilt. So you're now falling into the realm of an anterior tilt. The foot that's more pronated or and technically more turned out, will actually have a rotational influence on the pelvis, so rotating the pelvis away from the, the pronated foot. So now instead of looking at these feet and going, they're turned out, straighten them, we have a much bigger concept and picture of how the anatomy is all set up to contribute to that. If we then jump from that structure that I've just described back into the tissues, we've now got, um, we've got flexed hip, that's long extensors, flexed knee, so long quadricep extensors, knee extensors, uh, foot muscles long. You've got this whole setup of muscles that are now under tension. Um, and so if muscles are long, can you lengthen a muscle more? Uh, or can that, is that muscle able to shorten if we're now, what we're actually observing is a person's resting posture. So because the muscle's under tension, like an elastic band that's under tension, you can't get much more length out of it and it won't shorten very well. Um, and that's partly down to the fact that the bones who are now in a uh, poor posture, if you like, an imbalanced posture, so foot turned out, pronated, dorsiflexed, flexed knee, you're going to find that that knee doesn't extend very well, that hip doesn't extend very well, the foot bones don't supinate very well. So the environment for actually generating um, good muscular contraction is really, really poor. Um, so... We then have another uh, rule, which is that muscles lengthen before they contract when you're observing the body in motion. So um, in an effortless way, what we want to see is a structure move, put length into a tissue. The length in that tissue will then contract to bring the structure back to its optimal resting position. 
So when I see somebody with their foot turned out, rather than think that I need to turn that in and be the correction, the information I'm getting from that person is that they are turning their foot out in order to generate that pronation, which is to generate more length in their system, which is actually to fire a contraction. And so the, what they're asking me to do is to help them activate their extensor chain. So the glutes that we described as long, the quads that we described as long, the foot supinators that we described as long. If I just turn that person's foot in and do not educate the bones to move, then they will, you will actually, what you're actually going to do, because they're not going to change their ability to dorsiflex. They stay dorsiflexed. You're not going to change their ability to extend the knee, so they stay flexed. And you're not going to change their ability to externally rotate the femur. So they go more internal, which is going to increase their anterior tilt and move their discomfort from wherever it was to wherever it's going to be. So now, now you're actually putting more pressure on the back, more pressure on the hip joints. Um, so while it might be an immediate fix, my feet, my, something hurts when my feet are turned out, but when I turn them in, it goes away. And I walk in a new pattern locking my feet forward, minimizing further movement. And then the next thing you know is three months later, a new pain is arising <laughs> in, in the system because you haven't actually taught the system how to, to do what it needs to do. Um, and so what we would, we would do is honor the, the fact that you've got turned out feet and take that information, uh, which is to improve your ability to pronate, improve your ability to flex your ankles, improve your ability to flex your knee, flex your hip, etc. all in a nice sequence that, in, that enables the extensor chain to load, finally actually get some activation. And as they start going through this process, what you will see is an unconscious response. So the unconscious response is, I no longer need to turn my feet out anymore because I'm getting the feedback I was asking for. So they'll start to turn their feet in, which is very different from me saying, turn your feet in to them going, I, I will turn my own feet in because I no longer need it. And it's happening unconsciously and under the radar, which is something that's always kind of been exciting for me uh, to, to be able to see unconscious change where I know we had an off-air off chat about your Achilles, but you were saying how much you tried this, tried that, and tried to change the walk and tried to minimize shock in the... But the more you try, the less you get. It has You have to get the environment right for the body in order for it to decide to take the pressure off the, the areas that it's currently experiencing problems. Yeah, it's um, that's one of the most fun things about athletics is uh, working with the human body is seeing that unconscious change. Because uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of, typically 99% of <clears throat> interventions are all, try this, try that, you know, <laughs> try, try moving like this. And it's, it's yeah. hard to fight, because you feel like you're always fighting something. You're always fighting an inner working of the body. And yeah. so it, it definitely... Um, but the word fight, you don't want to fight, because the, the, you know that fight creates conflict. So what's the, what's the easiest and you know, most flowy zen way around the process is to remove the obstacles and um encourage things to do the things that they were meant to do i mean and that i mean that's a big part of it's a very difficult conversation isn't it that the the bones are designed to do this who designed them like what are they meant to do who said they're meant to do anything um, but when you look at the structure of a bone you look at the shape of the the articulating surface and the and the and the surface that it connects to, and you can see the movement that it's designed to have that it's supposed to have, um, and these are shapes that we all carved out through our own. Enter a really difficult space again. Did we carve it out through our own movements, through our own 
DNA, through our genes, you know, whatever that is for you, we all ended up carving out the same shapes, like all feet moving and um, uh, they, they move and um, experience the same opportunity, the, the same possibilities um, in them. So as long as we can understand those requirements, we, we're able to set about specifically um, encouraging them to do what they were meant to do or designed to do by virtue of um, the, the shape of the bones. It's no different to understanding you know, a hip joint or, or the way the knee, the knee moves, um, the shape of the bones dictates the movement. Um, and I always say that joints actually give muscles something to do without any joint movement. The muscle has nothing to do. So the more we then pound on muscles to do stuff, if the joint's not doing what it could, we're never going to get, you know, where we, where we should. So, you know, thank God we have this ability to compensate and find new ways, um, in our body to deal with the lack that we have in certain areas of our, of our structure. Yeah. I'll, I'll remember that. I like, um, I, I know from your book, you talk about joints acting and muscles reacting. And I, I use that phrase quite a bit, but I like, I really like how you just put it. Joints give muscles something to do. <laughs> I, yeah. to me, that has a, a different, but a really cool resonance to it. So I'll, I'll keep it's, that. That's my new line. I think I keep trying to hammer that one home. Yeah, for sure. I, I going back a little bit, I really like how you said you don't really label anything, a dysfunction or a problem. Mm. I, I I think about that a lot. I think it's common nature for therapists to instantly just rattle off a checklist of, and I've, and I, the last year, especially, I really check my language around athletes in regards to how I, you know, we, when we talk about doing corrective exercises and screens and anything like that, but I think it's very easy for therapists, particularly, or if you're in the medical or the, I guess the medical side, uh, so to speak, to say, hey, um, you know, this and this and this is wrong with you, <laughs> and here's how yeah. we're going to fix it. And mm -hmm. just, uh, t I think that, like you said, and and your answer was incredibly thorough. And one, I'll I'll probably listen back when I go back through this. I will I will be listening to it several times uh, <laughs> to make sure it really sinks in because I think there was so much in there. But it's, I think that the more we understand about the body, the more that we don't have to just say well, this is wrong with you. Like, you know, we can, there's more options. There's more things on the table. There's more things to explore. And our body is so, the system of systems that is our body is so complex. It's, it's almost a lesson in understanding it rather than just saying, well, this is wrong with it. It's crazy. I think we, it, whenever there is something wrong, it's an opportunity to investigate, you know, what is going on? Why is, I, I think what, what we aspire to do is to take pressure off the system. Um, and so where people have discomfort or pain, there is excess pressure on, on that area to, to try and take the pressure off without understanding it could have you in completely the wrong, in the wrong part of town. Um, and that's where, I mean, so many people have had, um, ankle sprains. I always, I think I talk about ankle sprains quite a lot. Um, maybe it's cause I had a lot when I was a kid, but you have an ankle sprain that that will go unchecked for years because you will have what you'll have done is you'll have iced it you'll have kept the weight off it um and then you will have uh maybe strapped it and then you start to get your band out or write some you write your name in the air with you pointing your toes um and you never actually get back to putting your weight back on that leg um, you never actually get the talus to sit back where it where it was before the horrific ankle sprain. You never get back to making sure that the fibula can slide again because because nobody's looking. 
nobody's actually taking the time in that rehab space to go, let's just see how your bones are resting. Um, and, and then what happens is your ankle doesn't hurt anymore, but everything else does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 15 years later, people don't understand their shoulder problem, they don't understand the back problem, and, but, and it all comes down. They're carrying their mass on the wrong leg because they're scared to put the weight on that one in case it goes again because the structure is still susceptible and in a position that you left it last time you did it 20 years ago. And, and that, that will live with you forever unless it's dealt with. Um, probably one of my favorite things to do, actually. Is, is 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 to work with ankle sprains and just the confidence that somebody can get when they put their weight back on it when they recognize that there's movement there again that they can and and you can explore that it, it's a huge it's a huge thing to take pressure off the rest of the system um and that, and it can have far-reaching effects where and and what's really wonderful is when it's it, it, you do it with somebody who's been and had the shoulder rehab and had the back rehab, but but they're keeping, they keep the problem. They're not sure where to go. And you come and you just fiddle with their ankle sprain. And then that, that stuff starts to lighten up. That, I mean, that's when you know you're really in the right, in the right spot. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned ankle sprains. I was just thinking about, <laughs> I, you had mentioned, yeah, we had said, talked about my Achilles issues and most of my Achilles issues were in the leg that I sprained an ankle a few times uh, in my early twenties. And I had never had Achilles problems prior to that. And then they kind of started showing up in my mid to late twenties. But I think that some of the, the, I, I mean, when I rehabbed it, I just, I basically, I mean, I was kind of the anti rehab rehab guy in the sense of, I, I didn't necessarily, I didn't do any ice or I didn't, I just kind of, I think I might've just wrapped it and then I just got back to work as quick as I could. But what I yeah. re- realized later down the line is there was some movement that I lost in that process that showed up in um like my right calcaneus versus my left and that's I, i'm generalizing a little bit because i my my knowledge isn't isn't you know, nearly as uh, detailed as yours but i um the i i just knew my right bones and my right heel in the in that area weren't moving as well and i yeah. that's what your wedges definitely helped me out with tremendously <laughs> but uh it, it was like man if i could have just done this right away well, I never would have had these, you know, these Achilles issues all throughout my twenties, or at least would have drastically minimized them. Um, yeah. And so, it, but it's just, it's funny to me how we just go to a muscle. Uh, if you sprain something, we just go to a muscle perspective, do these TheraBand exercises and, yeah. you know, ice and do whatever, but there's not, there's nothing, you, yeah, nothing. Of in course the, you're the foot. doing that. You're doing those in the open chain as well. They're happening with you sat on the couch, pointing your toe, um, and writing your name is, um, you know, and you might dorsiflex it and you might uh, plantar flex it, point it and pull the toes up. But if you really, really interrogate that movement, that's your talocrural joint that's moving. There are still 33 joints below that that are not doing anything um, until you actually put the structure on the ground. Now, obviously, putting it on the ground when it's sore is not, not the, necessarily the first step unless you're capable. <clears throat> so most people's rehab of a, of an ankle is talocrural joint, not not achille, not um, calcaneus, not talus, not talus interaction with the navicular bone, not the, which is leading right down into the forefoot. So, um, and those bones are tightly packed, and so to you know we you definitely need to 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 pay attention to more than the talocrural joint. I mean, most people's feet end up very very limited in movement and so that's what you know that's why they'll back to your first question why they start turning the feet out because they're actually trying to generate more movement than they than they ordinarily have and so the foot is packed with tight 
fitting bones. The movement is really, really reduced. Um, and then our rehab is, is mainly talocrural joint, especially even with athletes, especially with athletes. Can you, can you get your knee to the wall is a, is a huge one that I end up working with all the time. You know, my dorsiflexion is not great. You go, the reason your dorsiflexion is not great is because you can't actually lower your arch, but get the bones out of the way. Um, and so then we start to look at, um, what's in the way again. Um, and it'll always be it'll bones that don't move down, bones that don't spread out, you know. Um, and so that's why we want to we we want to use these whatever we've got with manual tools or the wedges, as you keep mentioning, as external devices to help us experience the actual movements that we need, so that we can, um, uh, you know, get that ankle moving how how it should again. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the GymWare go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10", squatter versus a 511 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach me plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym aware so just like the gym where the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, uh, so speaking of uh, the dorsiflexion range and, and people who have bones in the way, I think that's a, a really common thing. You, oh, you don't have dorsiflexion range. Well, let's do some more stretches or you know mobilizations. Uh, right. But <laughs> uh, one something. And, and so ever since I've been um, encountered your work and, and just gotten more along the lines of uh, holistic lines of thinking with all these things. Uh, athletes with high arches. So I, I'm very much into pronation, but I, I wonder sometimes you, you have an athlete with a high arch or you have people with high arches and low arches. Mm -hmm. And I have children and I'm starting to watch them go from flat feet to watching their arches form, which is cool. Um, yeah. But, but uh, how much, so some of the very high arch, how much can we really expect them to flatten that? Like what's, I, I mean, I don't, obviously we, we're not going to all get to the same shape of foot over time. Like what are some, with the higher arch, what are some things that we should be looking for to happen and not to happen in the process of pronating correctly? Yeah. Okay. So, um, there's a bunch of things there. The first thing is, um, the first thing is we, we have a, a concept which is called finding center. 
Um, and and it's that's the unconscious part where we'll we'll put movement in and you're inviting the person to find their center, which is their version of neutral, which is their interpretation of where the most optimal space to be for them is now, if that makes sense. Um, and so when you take a person with a high arched foot and you, you take some history, you it's difficult to know, did, have you always had high arched feet? Um, did they become high arched uh, after a certain incident? Um, is it, do you have like neurological high arches or are you just, you know, is it, yeah, you, you know where I'm going. We're just mm-hmm. trying to get information. Um, the, the, how much should they pronate is is not something we want to determine. It's something we will invite them to pronate as much as they can in a safe way, um, where we create. <coughs> excuse me, where we create the environment for a pronated foot. Which I'll just remind you of what I said earlier, which is. Um, a pronated foot has to take place on three points of contact, fifth metatarsal head, first metatarsal head, and the calcaneus. So if you actually watch high arch people uh, pronate, you attempt to pronate, what you'll probably notice is that they lose the fifth metatarsal. The fifth metatarsal comes off the ground. And what what you're actually seeing is like, uh, we're not actually on camera, are we? But I'm moving my hand. I've got my palm, fingers straight, palm held, down to the ground and I'm lifting my little finger up and dropping my uh, thumb down and this movement here is what people consider to be pronation supination but that's the one thing that I would love people not to not to do so if I've got a high arch foot and I bend my knee and I try and help and force if you like my arch down we never really want anyone to force anything because it wants to be effortless and unconscious but when they um, do that movement, what you'll notice is that they lose the whole of the lateral border. And at that point, you can happily say to yourself, that foot's not pronating because the conditions for what a pronation is is not, is not accurate. And so you're far better to create an environment where that little toe is going to stay on the ground, the first toe is going to stay on the ground, and we're going to get a tiny little bit of movement. It might look nothing like the movement you had before, but it's a more real movement because the conditions of pronation are being set. Um, does that make sense? Yes. And, and the idea too, to, to pronate all the, basically all the met heads need to be on the ground too. That's, that's important. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All, all the met heads, but we'll, we'll talk about first and fifth yeah. in particular, cause they're the kind of, they're the wide ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the body, the brain will always find a tripod. That's another cool thing about the foot so if you can't get weight on your first metatarsal head it will move it you'll have the weight in the second and if you can't have it on the fifth then you'll have it on the fourth and and if you're one of those people who uh just reach down and have a feel for hard skin and it's under the second and the third metatarsal head that is probably where your tripod is second (laughs) metatarsal head third metatarsal head and your calcaneus (laughs) so yeah now we've got to create an environment where we can bring those other five down before we can even think about pronating that foot um and incidentally, that's where we, these wedges become super powerful because because instead of forcing those met heads down to the ground, which is, um, and I don't want to call anyone out, but you'll, you'll see people forcing metatarsal heads to the mm-hmm. ground, like maybe in a yoga class or, um, and, and I get it, it makes sense because if you force them down, you can apply pressure that will lift the arch up. But we don't want the arch to come up. We, wanna, we want the arch to go down. So we'll place the wedges to meet the floating metatarsal head bones, if you like, which gives them a cushion. So they, the brain gets an experience of them being grounded. And once they're grounded and they start bending their knee, you'll, you'll 
you have to see it to believe it, but you actually see the foot change its movement just by virtue of having them on the ground because it's it's you're, you've created the conditions for pronation. So I think that's the, with a high arch foot, the first thing is, is uh, can you create good conditions for the pronation? Obviously, the higher the arch, the stiffer the bones um, and the, and the um, more contracted the tissue potentially un under the foot. So question two is what, um, what, are the, what do the bones need to do? Uh, and that, that comes out of you, you build on those conditions of pronation by recognizing that in order for the arch to fall down, I need certain articulations to take place between the forefoot and the rear foot. Um, and, and also you need to take into consideration the resting posture. So here's the thing, this is, could be a bit of a curveball, but I have countless times, countless times over the years I've been met with, I've got a high arch supinated foot. And I go, we better check just to see if you have, because I don't really see many that often. Um, and one of the key things about movement in the foot is that, is that there is opposition between the rear foot structures and the forefoot structures. Um, when there is, the opposition is not present, then the forefoot and the rear foot are moving in the same direction at the same time, thereby eliminating movement in the bones. It's like um, putting your knuckles together uh, with both the back of the hands facing the ceiling and moving them both in the same direction. There's no articulation between the structure. So if I keep one still and move one, I get more movement. Um, and, and that's what we want to see uh, happening in a foot on a, on a very base level. And so what I see when these people say, oh, I've got a super high arched foot, um, you know, I'm looking for a supinated foot, me, me, me. <laughs> and then you pull them out and you take a quick assessment and the talus um, and the calcaneus are actually in an everted position. So eversion is creating a, a direction of pronation with a huge um, oppositional inversion of the forefoot and plantarfection of the metatarsal. So what you see is this super high arch, but a foot that is trying to pronate in the... Um, trying to pronate in the rear foot and supinate in the forefoot to compensate. And ultimately, it's like pressing the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So there's no movement again. You end up in a structure that is fighting and can't move. And so we call it rigid. I've got a rigid supinated foot. It's not rigid. It is rigid. It's rigid by virtue of trying to press the accelerator and the brake at the same time, which means you go in nowhere. So no movement. Um, and it's not a supinated foot because the conditions of a supinated foot haven't been met, which would be to have an inverted um, an inverted rear foot, an externally rotated rear foot, and the tripod on the ground. And so you can instantly kind of go, it, we, we're carrying these labels, a pronated foot that doesn't have a fifth metatarsal on the ground is not a pronated foot. A supinated foot that, that has an everted rear foot is not a supinated foot. We've, but we've got these labels because we're so lazy about defining them that we would say, well, that's a low arch, that's pronated, do this. That's supinated foot, it's got a high arch, do this. But we haven't taken the time to understand the structure, the mechanics that have gone into those bones, how they've organized themselves to be able to make better, better decisions. So um, I think that that's another important thing is, is what structure are we actually dealing with here? Yeah, I think, oh, sorry, I, do you have an, to interrupt you, I just had a thought. I was actually going, I'm sure I had a third point, but I can't remember. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, sorry. I, I, I just, something kind of cool came to my mind as you were talking about that, because I think it is so e easy to generalize and so easy to label. And it's like, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect, we think we know so much more about something. And then as we 
go on in our lives, we start and we, we do start to understand how much we really didn't know. And I was thinking about a lot of research I come across. It talks about how, how not effective, uh, corrective like footwear is like, here's a shoe for a, a over pronator or a high archer mm. load and how that those shoes don't help at all. Like they're, there's, it's, it doesn't. And I don't know why they still sell, you know, but it's like, it's a generalization. It's a, oh, you're yeah. this. So of course, and there's other reasons things that are wrong with it too. Um, but I think that amongst other but things it's, is, it's often, it's often, often that like a lot of people, you know, I get the shoe question a lot and, um, not that you've actually asked me the shoe question, but I'm thinking when you, when it goes to, um, an anti-pronation shoe, um, we can quickly, quickly kind of go, well, your foot's not pronating anyway. It's rolling inwards, but the bones aren't moving because all your pressure's on the metatarsal or not. It's on the second and third metatarsal, as we just described, building a lovely callus underneath <laughs> and rocking and rolling with my little finger and my thumb independently popping off the ground. So that's my hand movement, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, the fifth met comes up and then the, and it, it's not, supinating i think i'd love it if people really got clear on the fact that that a foot is either pronating or it or it isn't and a foot is either supinating or it isn't it's the same with the knee flexion like it is it actually flexing or is it just is it bending and creating like a a, a, a more acute angle in the back of the knee or is it actually flexing the way it was supposed to with the with the femur kind of rolling forward on the tibial plateau um do you know what I mean? There are, there are ways these things are supposed to do it. And uh, we end up in a lot in the conversation of going, that knee's bending, but it, it's not flexing. You know? Um, and that will put stresses on patella tendons. And, you know, it, that, that, that's, that just go back, back to the foot. I, I think there is, there is a way. We, we, we're too quick to generalize. We're too quick to give solutions. And we haven't understood the foot as an entity. Uh, and there is a lot to understand in there. There's 26 bones, 33 joints that move in three dimensions. I, I, I can, I'll talk about the foot. We'll do a lecture about the foot and then we finish with the foot. And then the next thing, you know, you talk about go up to the knee, the hip, and you're at the head before you know it. And you're like, oh my God, I spent three hours on the foot and 30 minutes getting through, you know, mm-hmm. and we spend our, our life in the 30 minutes, not in the three hours. Um, and, and I think that's where, uh, that's obviously why I've, what I enjoy and um, uh, as you can probably hear, like but get really kind of passionate about because um, I, we're missing a lot down there. We're missing a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. Something that you said, have, have you said a few times throughout this show, I agree completely with, and that's the effortless, effortlessness of acquiring the, the sensation and skill of moving the foot well. And I think that something that actually I, I'm guilty of it too uh, is I uh, is telling people, hey, you're in single leg stance, or maybe we're doing the single leg stance drill and saying, okay, now I want you to make sure you feel your first met head or the ball of your big toe, your fifth met head, the ball of your pinky toe, and your heel. Like feel those on the ground. But if yeah. I you have people standing on one leg for an extended period of time, inevitably you tend to see like that fifth met head popping off the ground repeatedly, or the big toe first met head popping off the ground repeatedly. And yeah, and I think. Like if they're having to force it down and consciously say, stay down to, on the ground, is, is that a compensation? You know, like, is that, are they really getting the optimal thing from a movement perspective or are they just like turning on extra muscles to put that thing down on the ground? And then how will, will they retain that when they actually go play their sport? And so yeah. 
it makes sense that doing something where there's like, and I hope to get into some the basic use of how your wedge system works, but you would like putting a wedge in there to make it effortless. So now this, there's sensory feedback and it's not a difficult, it's not, it's not difficult. It's just working with the way the body is supposed to work. Sure. My, my, my first invite would be for that person who's effectively wobbling around on their, on their leg. So we, we want single leg stance, but it's actually a single leg wobble right <laughs> is to go okay can we create an environment where you can experience this with the tripod on the ground because at the moment you you put your first on the ground the fifth comes up you put the fifth on the ground the first comes up it's a it's a seesaw or a teeter totter where whereby the bones the whole foot is actually everting or inverting it's not pronating or supinating because pronation is three planes of movement sagittal plane that requires some uh, plantar flexion dorsiflexion of the structures frontal plane some eversion inversion of the structures Um, and because the forefoot and the rear foot have to oppose that's an that's an eversion of the rear foot and an inversion of the forefoot for instance and also some internal and external rotation of the movement all of those things need to be present for that to take place and because they're rocking from side to side basically just everting and inverting there's the, the movement in the other two planes is non-existent and actually the articulation of the bones in that frontal plane eversion inversion is also non-existent so it's all happening again just above at the ankle <laughs> so if you can take the wedges and get here you go have have some comfort and and bring the ground up to that first metatarsal because you you can have them stand on it put all their body weight on it and you'll probably find you can lift that first off the ground lift the fifth off the ground and just fill that space. Put the wedges in under the under the first met, under the fifth met, and have them stand on it again. <coughs> what they won't be doing now is rocking in the in the fifth and first. So they've got to find a new strategy now. And that new strategy invariably is, oh, how do I move with these points of contact on the ground, which is getting you back to a place of, of normal normal movement. So it's it's all it's really all it's really all just problem solving. It's it's giving an um, a person an athlete a human being a problem and that letting their system solve it rather than mm. saying do this more more so like it, would that be a general a pretty a general way of putting it? Yeah, it's a it's it's a nice way. They have to find their own center. They need to experience their own movement. Um, we have a strap line in our courses, which is to to let the experience create the learning so for the student <clears throat> they they want to have an experience that they can't walk away from so it generates their their, their learning outcomes there's no point just listening to this stuff i know people are listening to this stuff <laughs> and hopefully taking stuff from it but my point is um that if you actually see it and experience it one in your body and see it in other people you you're, you're having this you you have this stronger outcome and so with people who come into I, I can't remember specifically the language you just used, but creating um, an opportunity for them to move in a more appropriate way, which is determined by those bone structures I talked about earlier, is going to be a far greater outcome than trying to balance or trying to um, be, you know, have have both of those metatarsals on the ground when actually it's something that their nervous system has, just has no clue about. It's funny because I was thinking earlier, uh, and it's it's come back to me. But often you'll find that the the leg that a person can stand on, that they're better at standing on, is the leg that is stable. And if you really look into it, it 
are they stable because the bones in those feet don't actually move very well? And the foot that's got more movement present, it actually looks like the unstable one. So they, they both then need work. You, ha you have an exchange of lack of mobility in one foot and excess mobility in another foot. So you have to introduce mobility to the stable foot, not applaud it for its, its, its successful standing stillness. And then in doing so, can you, can you generate movement to a greater excess that will give those muscles more to do so that those muscles will generate a, and create a more rigid structure as well? So you, you start to come to a balance between two legs versus one. So obviously the attention is normally always drawn to the one that's wobbly. And we and we and we tend to miss the. Uh, the I, I think you'll probably always find if you actually took that foot in your hand and tried to mobilise and see the one that is really stable is the one that they that, that they need to put movement into. But it brings the whole stability mobility question um, up front. I think is stable good? Is mobility good? You know, are they useful words? Useless words? They will, they will come to a place where they experience and have an awareness of both by virtue of being able to move their structure back to, I was just saying, repeating myself all the time, a way that, suit, that suits them, or a way that is dictated by their joint surfaces, um, et cetera. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to think about because I think stability, at least in the sports <laughs> performance strength and conditioning realm, and probably a lot of human performance realms, seems to be the it's it's one of the most used words that you're going to hear are you stable and are you stable but i always wonder like what what is what are we really looking for in terms of the ability to like uh, uh this kind of maybe going off the rails but like the ability of a, a an athlete to be like bumping around in the post playing basketball and be appropriate be able to appropriately <laughs> uh produce the forces to to move around and and deal with the other player um, I, I feel like just saying, are you stable is kind of a generalization. And so I think that, uh, in the, in looking at the, the foot and, and everything else, I, I think there's always something more to that. So I, that's something that's really interesting. I definitely with like the leg that's wobbly versus the leg that isn't moving as much and, and looking deeper into that. I think that's definitely something that I'll be taking a look at. Listen, both, both of those create a problem. And I know I said we don't like the word problem, but it's worth it's worth just toying with. If we draw up a spectrum on a piece of paper, you draw a line on a piece of paper and you and you you find a midline and you give two extremes. At one extreme is move too much, and then the other extreme is 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 move too little. Right? If um if if you have the foot or the or any structure that moves too little. Is it's going to be unable to uh, experience and ascertain the full range potential, and therefore the muscles are not going to be able to. Um, if it's too stable, the muscles are not going to be able to lengthen appropriately. They're not going to be able to then have the opportunity to shorten, and the range available at the structure has to be reduced. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Then you've got the foot that moves too much. Ironically, um, it it won't move too much in both directions. And what I mean by that is you can't have a hip that, that moves excessively in flexion and extension. That would just be weird, right? It would probably mean that the, the hip is not in the socket. That's, that's the reality of that situation. And so it's going to either move too much in flexion and not enough in extension or vice versa. So a foot that moves too much, you'll probably be watching it wobble inwards more than it wobbles outwards or outwards more than it wobbles inwards, right? And the joke about that is that 
is that that excess movement towards inwards um, and not outwards means that it will load, it will move into the tissues, creating a big long stretch in those tissues perpetually. And the structure has the inability to go the opposite direction, which means that in exactly the same situation as we had with the the stable structure where range is limited, the over mobile structure also range has to be limited. Because if you're stood on the left side of a room and you can't go any more left, <laughs> a bit abstract, mm-hmm. but if you're stood on the left side of a room and you can't go any more left, and that we put that in the body's terms, if, I, if I'm quite pronated and I can't pronate anymore, then I don't have enough load and length in the tissue to trigger a contraction, which means that the opposite movement is taken away from me. So I'm moving and mobile and wobbly, but the overall range potential is minimal. I won't wobble in both directions evenly. And if I did, it would be, I'd be in a very centered position. And, but the more centered you are, the more access you have to both left and right, the more you have movement of the tissue in both directions, the more you can stimulate a contraction in the opposite direction and the more, the more movement you have. So if you, towards any end of any spectrum, whether it's, if I'm more flexed than I am extended, range is reduced. If I'm more extended than I am flexed, overall range is reduced if i'm more rigid than i am mobile the overall range is reduced you can't get away from it so when people we look at people's postures and a pelvis is more left than it is right the overall range is reduced if i'm flexed in my spine my overall range is reduced you can't get away from it so the only way if we can create the movements that actually that um and what we'll focus on is the movements that they actually struggle to achieve not the ones that they do well the ones that they they didn't even know they could do. So countless people don't even know what it's like to extend a knee. Athletes as well. Because their feet are quite pronated, the knees are a little bit flexed, they've no idea what it is to extend a knee or a spine. Um, and and we'll, people will be listening going, yeah, we do, we do that all the time. But have you, you know, a spinal extension is not what hinging off one joint in the lower back to lift your ribcage. It's getting an articulation in every single segment between L5 and, and T1. Does that make sense? It's the same as the foot. We have to get articulation in every bone and every joint, not just one or two of them, because in those environments, overall range is reduced and compensation is, is large. So trying to think like that, the only place we can fully adeptly move from is a position of center. And that's always been the holy grail of anatomy, which is, uh, you know, as an osteopath, I want to, I'm going to look at you, I can see you're off center, and we're going to move a few things so that you can hold neutral again. When you find neutral, then we're going to stabilize it and lock it down, because finally, we've friggin found it. But then you're taking away movement again. So we actually need to, the more we explore the extremes, the more we explore um, the extreme possibilities on our movement, the more we'll load the tissue, the more we give tissue something to do, the more that tissue can react. And when tissue on both sides has an equal reaction to movement, then you can stand in a rested, centered position. And from that place, you can jump and squat and run and hit a golf ball like you've never done it before. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. So would that be, um, would, would center, uh, I'm just thinking about this, like, so if I'm if I'm standing on one leg and I, my, my, first my head's like coming off the ground repeatedly or something like that or 
Yeah, or let's say my 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 fifth my my pinky the ball of my pinky toe is coming off the yeah. ground a lot, and I'm pressing it down actively. I'm not letting my center is now all the way on the edge. Like I walk to the right side of the like effectively from a nervous system perspective in the body. I'm I'm kind of standing on the right side of the room and where the yeah. goal is to be in the middle and to have the options on both sides. Yeah, you you a pronation and supination should take place with both first and fifth metatarsal on the ground. And so that would be when I'm pronating, the fifth is engaged on the ground, but I'm probably going to put more weight towards the inside. And as, as I supinate, I'll put more weight towards the outside, but the first wants to maintain contact on the ground. So it requires a movement in itself of the joints, and it also requires the ability to be as close to neutral as possible as a resting structure in order to comfortably do that. So... I call neutral the holy grail. Like if, if, you've, if you ever find it, you know, good luck to you. But most people are so far away from it that the more we can create movement in their system, they'll move towards it and find their own version of it that, that, is, that is determined by them, their structure, their history, their habits, their repetitive movement patterns, their life, their birth, whatever. But, you know, when you take all that into consideration, I, I can't physically know what that is for you as a person. So I'm just going to invite you to find your own. And we'll do that through exploring movement, making sure that your spine extends at each segment, laterally flexes at each segment, flexes at each segment, rotates through each segment, that the rotation is going to connect to the scapula and on both sides, that the neck will get the oppositional experience, your pelvis can move and feed into the thigh, which bends the knee, which gets the feet. Um, and, it, you know, I know it seems like a huge, big, big... Um, outreach but hopefully hopefully it makes sense you can't move one structure without moving them all so people by by putting improved movement into the areas that they didn't know they didn't know about areas that just they just are blind spots in their movement they'll naturally find that they can share both sides of the room whether it's first met fifth met or left lateral flexion right lateral flexion um, and and then in that environment they're able to they begin to be able to explore their own center and rest in a more peaceful place take length tensions away from um, uh, in certain muscles and give integrity back to other muscles um, and experience joint movement as it's supposed to be. That's, I think that's a good prelude for the question of uh, pronation and over pronation. So I think, uh, yeah. yeah, and that could be a whole show, but I mean, on some level, I think it does take a little bit of an eye for it. Like at least, at least start watching athletes and have some basic idea. But um, the, I mean, what's, what, what is the line? Like, where's like, how do we, how can I, I mean, can you definitively say, I mean, I guess we don't want to say you're dysfunctional, right? But like, is there a definitive point where it's, I guess now you're over pronating or, or I'm, yeah, I'm trying to come back to the, like the, the language to use there, but you know what I'm saying? Like what? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you're going to get a Gary Ward response, Yeah, which, okay. <laughs> is, which is actually what if there's no such thing as over pronation? All right. There's just pronation and you can either do it or you can't. If I can do it, I'll do it with the conditions for pronation set, with a tripod on the ground and all the bone structures moving. What, what we'll call overpronation is when an arch is excessively close to the ground or there's loads of movement. But if you assess that movement, what you'll find is that the tripod has been lost. Hmm. And therefore, we've moved into an, a whole foot everting rather than a foot pronating. And so we can say that you could probably say that an over-pronating foot is an everting foot. 
Whereas, and so what we need to do is we need to make sure that there is opposition between the forefoot and the rear foot in all three dimensions, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, rotation, internal, external, and eversion, inversion, taking place at the appropriate structures in, in the foot so that it can begin to pronate and supinate again. So it's like, I've, I've got three points of contact. I'll pronate as far as I can. And you can test this because if you, if you actually deliberately take your knee way inside your big toe when you do a lunge you'll just see the whole of the outside of the foot pick up that you've gone too far but if someone's doing that in normal life walking into a clinic you go that's over pronating until you change your mind and go that's not over pronating you just can't keep your fifth metatarsal on the ground so what if we brought the knee in a little bit created an environment where you can experience movement with three points of contact get those bones all moving in the way they're supposed to and then and then see what happens um so it i don't think it's about where is over and where is under it's like are you pronating or are you not and if you think it's over pronating it's probably not pronating that's my gary ward answer <laughs> yeah that's a good that's a good way of putting it i i mean i like just the idea of it it i think it makes it simpler just to say are the metatarsal head or are this the, the tripod on the ground um or not, and when this action yeah. is happening. And but here's one for everyone who's listening. If, they, if you stand up, put your feet hip width apart, um, as if so, hip width apart, narrower than you think, probably, guys. And then what I want you to do is just rotate your whole body to the right. And as you rotate your whole body to your right, do you feel your first metatarsal head lift off the ground? Because if it does, and the pressure is now going towards the outside of the foot, what's happened is your foot is not supinating. It's inverting. The, you, the foot's done this. The, 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 the big toe and the inside of the calcaneus has come up. So that's what I mean by an inversion. If you look at the left foot and the little toe has come off the ground, that foot is everting. Now you can go, wow, shit, I can't actually pronate or supinate I, my left foot or my right foot. So we'll rotate the other way, rotate to the left and check, does your big toe stay on the ground? This is a self-assessment. If your big toe, when you rotate left, if you can feel that big toe flying off, and I'm not talking about trying to force it down, because if you do force it down, this is a lovely kind of segue from what we've been talking about with the force, but if you force it down, you'll notice you can't rotate left anymore. What we want is when you rotate left, is that metatarsal just hugs the ground and creates an arch. If it doesn't, you, you don't have the ability to supinate your foot. And it's not going to happen unconsciously. It's not going to happen when you're walking and it's not going to happen when you're running. So we need to do something about that. Yeah, it's to me the, yeah. So it's like that base mode really determines everything. And it's so easy to take the foot out of base mode. And, and now you're not really doing what you thought you were doing anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then we would use, you, we, again, we would use, use the wedges to fill that space and see if you actually start uh, pushing back into that wedge. That will help to actually create a, a real arch for you uh, where you're not forcing it down, but you're rotating right and the right toes pushing into the wedge. Then the muscles are contracting underneath the foot to, to shorten the foot and create the right shape in the bones. It, c- it, it can be as simple as that. Yeah, for sure. Once uh, you have a new, once you have a, if, if I asked you today to turn right and your toe came up, then what we can assume is that for the last however many years, that's probably been the same until you go back to maybe an injury where you damaged it or, you know, it's probably been the same for a long, long time. So if after one rep with a wedge, it goes in the other direction, 
that's a new neurological experience that you can go and your brain goes, oh, I, I prefer that. I think there's a lot more value to me having that movement in my body than the one I've been doing for a long, long time. Um, and then I guess, I don't know if it's the word is hope or whatever, but we promote that uh, in the hope that it's, it, that it's of service to us as we go forward. But what we know is the supinating foot is bigger than the first mat on the ground. It's a whole body action, which is what we were talking about earlier. And so we can then start to integrate that whole body action to make sure that that supinating foot is actually contributing to whole body movement. Gary, I, the, the pronation and supinate and I mean, everything that goes in there is it's, it's complex, but the more I talk to you, the more, the more it all makes sense. And I think it draws with a lot of, uh, not even just the foot, but even just athletic coaching in general, then the effortlessness and the center. Um, I think they're universal principles that really make a lot of mm -hmm. sense. I, before we go, could you tell me a little bit, us a little bit about, so you talked about the wedges and, and mm. how to make these things uh, more effortless. And I, I already know that anything I'm doing in single leg stance, I, uh, I'm going to have such a different eye on that now and an eye to make it effortless and thoughts with like you know, the wedges and everything. So for um, people interested in like the wedges and the things you're doing with that, how do they find more information about that? Um, well, we have uh, a couple of, um, programs. One is called Wake Your Body Up and the other one is called Wake Your Feet Up. Um, and the Wake Your Body Up has been out in circulation for um, quite a while. Um, and it's a self-assessment opportunity to um, go through a process that, which is what we would do in clinic. But it's, what you don't realize is you're assessing your ability to access your own gait cycle. Um, and through the assessment, you're actually exploring all of the movements that where we mentioned earlier you, it's the movements that you didn't know you couldn't do by going through this process we're creating a container whereby the muscles you, the movements you didn't know you couldn't do you're going to have to do to go through the assessment <laughs> so automatically you start reintroducing new movement into your into your body by by going through this process it's quite long um there's it goes through an assessment into a physical um movement an invitation to get these movements moving and then nice integrated movement patterns for, for whole body exploration. Um, and the second part uh, at the moment is the wake your feet up package, which comes with the, uh, a set of wedges. So we'll be going through a lot of what we talked about today, an assessment of how your foot um, moves. So you'll be assessing your tripod, you'll be assessing um, your ability to generate the appropriate foot shapes um, and then also uh, we're going to be introducing you to how you can use these wedges to make the movements that, again, that you're struggling with in the foot to actually happen. Use the wedges to give yourself a tripod, use them, and then just explore movement in a brand new way on the foot, which is teaching you to both pronate and supinate with a tripod on the ground so that you can feed up into the knee and up into the hip and then uh, up into the area where wake your body up is actually focusing on. So the two together should create a really powerful um, um, opportunity for you to assess your whole body and, and reintroduce movement in a new way. So no more trying, no more pushing met heads down, no more scrunching towels, but just exploring movement through your joints and inspiring your muscles to have something to do. Um, and it's been a, it's, a, it's a goal of mine to be able to produce these uh, with as little cost as possible. So I think you, most people would be surprised that... Um, 
how inexpensive this is, but also just how effective it can be. So um, it's not, it's, this is, a, I know this podcast goes out to a lot of professionals, but the aim and the goal is that we can actually encourage people of lesser incomes with who struggle with their bodies to also move um, and, and work on their own body in a, in a way that's they've probably never done before. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I know I've gotten a ton of um, effectiveness out of them myself. So it's really exciting news. Um, but thanks. Thanks again so much for being on the show today, Gary. Uh, it's my pleasure, Joel. I hope we can do it again. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Again, that was a dense episode. And in the editing process where I went through it uh, more than once, I learned it's like every time I listen to something, I just picked up so much more. Gary's knowledge is vast. And I hope you guys got as much out of that as I did. And that you also just have a newfound appreciation for the bones of the foot, the movement of the foot, and how important it is that the human body can move in general. So uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you enjoy what we're doing, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you listen to. We would really appreciate it. And uh, we can't thank you guys enough for listening to this series. Lastly, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We appreciate them as a sponsor, so be sure to support them and check out what they are doing. All right, that does it for this week. We'll see you next week with another great guest.